Today we shall look at the first 12 verses of Mark's Gospel. We left the story last time with Jesus travelling around the towns and the villages of Galilee, healing people of diseases and casting out devils. Yet his primary activity was to preach the message of the Kingdom of God. We focused where the Bible focused, which was on the healing of a leper. And we noted with amazement what was symbolised for us in that healing, which is salvation from sin. So Jesus became unclean that we might be made clean. After a while, Jesus returned to Capernaum. And not surprisingly, the locals soon found out that he had returned and they gathered around the house. No doubt they would still have a fresh memory of that incredible Saturday night when Jesus healed a great many people. So here, Jesus welcomes people into the house. The house is soon filled. More people arrive. They stand in the doorway and the numbers increase so much that it was soon impossible for anyone to get close enough to Jesus to listen to him. And Jesus preached the word of God to them. We should remember that, although from a human perspective, the scene was slightly chaotic, all those who were meant to hear Jesus preach heard him. And it's the same for us today. When open-air preachers speak to the crowds in the city centres, you might think that those who happen to hear the gospel are a random selection of the people out that day. But even their being in that place at that time is no accident. God ordains their hearing of the gospel, even if they hear for just a, a few seconds. All the variables in that situation come under the grand purpose of God. The quality of the gospel preached, whether good, bad or in between, is determined by God. The amount of time a hearer listens is determined by God. And of course, their ability to understand and respond to that gospel message is also determined by God through the sovereign working of the Holy Spirit. Once again, this episode is dominated by one incident. It concerns the arrival of five friends. One of the friends had a disability. Now, the medical terms used in the 1600s were, of course, often different from today's usage but still I think I think everyone has agreed that the term as used here means a partial or complete paralysis of the body. His four friends carry him on a bed or a stretcher to where Jesus was. They had a strong belief that Jesus could heal their friend. It was some kind of faith. Mark reports that they realised there was no way they could carry their friend through the front door. But such was their faith and such was their love for their friend that they were determined to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. I imagine one of them will have come up with the idea, a quite bizarre idea, of breaking into the house through the roof. It was a creative solution, but it was also vandalism. So they found a way onto the roof. 
if it was one of the houses that had steps at the side, they could use those. If there were no steps, they would have to climb onto someone else's roof and make their way along the rooftops. I don't know what was at the forefront of the paralysed man's mind at that moment. Whether it was excitement at the thought of being healed or fear of being dropped. <laughs> but the men did it. They dismantled the roof so the stretcher could be carefully lowered into the house. It tells us that Jesus saw their faith and on that basis he pronounced the paralysed man's sins forgiven. It's one of the mysteries, the marvels of the nature of Jesus that we hear of him being impressed by people's faith. Now we can only go so far in explaining how Jesus thought like last week when we tried to make some sense of the compassion of Jesus here we have another example of Jesus being moved by the faith of people even though that very faith was given by God in the first place I hope I'm not the only one to have been surprised by what Jesus did Based on his actions up to this point, we might have predicted that Jesus would just heal a man of his paralysis. Yet, curiously, he forgives the man's sins. Through reading the rest of the account and having a fuller picture of the person and work of Jesus from the Bible, we can begin to see why he did this. Truly, he forgave the man's sins because... He had purposed to do so in eternity. This man was one of God's elect. The remission of his sins through this face-to-face -face encounter with the Saviour himself was undoubtedly the single most important part of this episode. Yet, Jesus engineers the whole incident in order to provoke a reaction from a certain section of the audience. Religious leaders had come from as far as Jerusalem to investigate this man Jesus of Nazareth, but the investigation was far from impartial. Despite all the evidence they would be presented with, their dark hearts would generate nothing but hostility to Jesus. On this occasion there was there were nothing but murmurings in the hearts of the scribes. What we shall see as we work our way through this gospel of Mark's, that this opposition would become greater. Murmuring in the heart would turn into murmuring out loud. This would turn into open accusation. And it would all culminate in the murder of the Son of God. We read that the reaction of the religious leaders was one of offence. Their immediate thought on hearing Jesus forgive the man's sins was to be offended. On this point at least, I think we shouldn't be too harsh on them. They were partly right as experts in the scriptures. They held quite rightly that the only one who could forgive sins was God. After all, God was not only the one who had been offended against but as the king of the world he was the only one to have the authority and power 
to forgive sins. They, they will have been familiar with the words of their own prophet, Isaiah, who said this, Isaiah 43 and verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. So where these religious leaders got it wrong was in the identification of this man. Believing Jesus to be only a man, the only conclusion they could arrive at was that he was a blasphemer. I could tell you what they should have thought about Jesus, but I say this as one who has received light. We have no right to look down on these religious leaders, since we only know who Jesus is because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. But nevertheless, I'm going to restate what God has made clear in the scriptures, which is that the unbelief of the scribes was sinful. Why then should the scribes and Pharisees have believed Jesus? The group of religious leaders as a whole, by the time of the crucifixion, they would have been met with powerful and plenteous evidence that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was the Saviour, that he was the King. Why, he dispensed forgiveness of sins. He miraculously healed people of diseases. He raised people from the dead. He testified that he would soon be sitting at the right hand of God. He called himself the I Am. And he told them that he and his Father in heaven were one. And not insignificantly we see in this account that he was able to read minds. Their private thoughts may have they may as well have been shouted out loud. Jesus immediately heard their very thoughts. And as we testify to the world about Jesus Christ, we should not neglect to warn people that even their innermost thoughts are not hidden from God. We read here in First Chronicles 28 and verse 9, And thou, Solomon, my son, Know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart, and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts, and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If you were to imagine yourself as one of these men for a second, you'll find it hard to believe that they didn't immediately believe on Jesus. I mean, if he immediately read your mind, surely at least one of the possibilities is that he is divine. But for the one who God has withheld his grace from, every fragment of the gospel that they hear and every bit of evidence that is laid before them only hardens the heart. You know, I don't think I'll ever stop being surprised at what the hardening of a man's heart does to him. 
You can passionately testify to what God has done for you and it will have no impression on him. You can show him the sophisticated and marvellous word of God and he will not believe it. You can use the highest levels of theology, reason, logic, philosophy of religion and scientific argument to persuade him. But he will not be moved. It doesn't matter how much you ramp up your enthusiasm unless God performs heart surgery on him and gives him a new heart. All your words will be nonsense to him. Now, the approaches I've just outlined are rightly employed by the Christian in his efforts to persuade men to believe. But all our efforts should, of course, be accompanied by fervent prayer to God. And if God chooses to save a soul in response to your prayer, that man or woman will begin to understand your words for the first time. God will teach them the language of the children of Zion. The reaction of the scribes here allows Jesus to make his point. He puts a question to them. He asks them which they think is easier, forgiving someone's sins or healing an incurable disease. Trying to get into the minds of the scribes, I think they, I think they would have realised that both of these things were naturally impossible. Let me just try to suggest three purposes in Jesus' actions here. Firstly, by performing one of the actions that the onlookers thought impossible, he showed his authority, he showed his power. A right response would be for them to realise that if he did indeed have the authority and power to instantly heal this man, of this terrible disease, he must be divine. He does have the authority and power to forgive sins also. He must be the one promised by the prophets, like Zechariah. It's recorded in Zechariah 13 and verse 1. It says, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The second purpose in Jesus' actions was he was making the point that if he could do the outwardly more difficult act, he must therefore be able to do the outwardly simpler one, that is, saying your sins are forgiven. And thirdly, and surely, most importantly, Jesus meant to teach us that the forgiveness of sins was of greater importance than bodily healing. We find that this principle discriminates between people who have an interest in God and those who don't. If I was paralysed, but had been made aware of my sin and the presence of a saviour, I would judge that forgiveness of sins was infinitely more important than the curing of my paralysis. 
simply because the physical state is temporary where forgiveness of sins has eternal consequences the whirling in the same situation would think in the completely opposite way they would have no interest in forgiveness of sins and likely would not even acknowledge their sin as a problem they live for the here and now if given the choice they would choose to be relieved of their physical affliction rather than have forgiveness and it is this short-sightedness this blindness this obstinacy that will take such people to an eternal hell I can't tell from this passage the spiritual state of this paralytic beforehand obviously it makes sense that God would have dealt with him gradually bringing him to a knowledge of his sinful condition revealing Jesus as the one who could deliver him and having a desire to meet Jesus for the forgiveness of sins but we can't infer this confidently from this passage it seems at least possible that the only motive for being there that day was for a physical healing and that Jesus used this to bring him there in order to forgive his sins as a sort of surprise act perhaps it was perhaps it was just at the moment that the man lay at the feet of Jesus that he became aware of his sinful state but there is one thing we can say with confidence when the man left the house rejoicing at being able-bodied he would have been rejoicing far more that his sins had been forgiven listen to this in Psalms 119 and verse 71 it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes this man's affliction was good his life of difficulty embarrassment frustration and perhaps anger was used by God in his wise purpose to bring about this appointment with Jesus where he would receive eternal life and get bodily healing thrown in as a wonderful bonus what was their reaction they were all amazed they said they'd never seen anything like this and they glorified the God of heaven it's impossible to gauge the condition of the hearts of all the people present people can you know people can glorify God through a genuine spirit-driven desire but even unbelievers can be shaken by uh, visions of God's power and feel constrained to give glory to God and the scribes here if well if if they were the same individuals that we encounter later on they did not worship God they would have despised people for doing so and they will have been growing in their hatred for this man who in their twisted view was an enemy of God they thought Jesus was an enemy of God what stands out for me in this passage is the determination of these four men to get their friend to Jesus I suppose I suppose I had a faint expectation that Jesus would frown on their behavior it was impolite 
It was destructive. It showed an utter disregard for the property of the owner. Yet for all this bloody-mindedness, on their part, Jesus sees only faith. I thought it would be funny if this house didn't belong to Jesus, and it probably didn't. We can imagine the homeowner looking on in horror as his roof was destroyed and thinking, any moment now Jesus will uh, rebuke them. But no, our Saviour here teaches us that there are more important things than manners. There are times when we must set aside politeness and good manners for the sake of the gospel. Imagine if every time evangelists were told by members of the public that their preaching was offensive, that they stopped preaching. Imagine if visitors to a church told the pastor they didn't like him talking about sin. And then the pastor from then on omitted references to sin, righteousness and judgment. Well, we know this goes on, shamefully. Some do so covet the respect of the world that they compromise in these ways. Is there not a danger, though, in Jesus' approach that people will think that this forwardness is an acceptable way to approach God? Friends, this is not the danger. This is the intention. Conflicting with all our high views of God and attitudes of reverence towards him, he encourages us to approach him with our requests in ways that are far from polite. Listen to what it says in Matthew 11 verse 12. It says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. <laughs> if this verse means what I think it means, then I imagine it would benefit from a slightly different rendering. If there were no other verses to cast light on, on this one, I'd be inclined to interpret this as referring to unbelievers in the visible church. You know, they've, uh, like the, like the, uh, the, the, the wedding guest, you know, who uh, made his way into the, the wedding feast of the Lord and he didn't belong there. But this language is seen elsewhere in the scriptures. You might recall Luke uh, chapter 16 and verse 16 it says the law and the prophets were until John since that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it so you can tell the context of this verse is similar to the previous one so we can use them both along with other scriptures to form an idea of how God encourages us to approach him Luke says men press or barge into the kingdom Compared that with the crowds pressing their way into the house in our account. And in Matthew, the verse I just read, the, the translation uses the word violence. And this is approaching a bit more the actions of the vandals on the roof that we're looking at today. How is this possible? Surely God will want us to approach him politely. The thing is... God does not think in ways we think are proper. Most certainly, he wants us to honour him, glorify him, and treat him with due reverence. 
But along with this, he openly invites people to pester him. In other words, we go to God in prayer, in a spirit of humility, acknowledging that he is the eternal king, but he wants to see a dogged persistence in our prayers. He delights to see our enthusiasm. It is in our passion that he reads just how much we want the things we ask for. What we are not to do is go to God, apologise for taking up his time, tell him we'll be as brief as possible, make a request and determine not to bother him again for another year. No. We're to go to him day and night. We're to go day by day. We're to go week by week, month by month, year by year. And if you have prayed for years for something and not had your prayer answered, you must be prepared to live and die in prayer. Such should be the endurance of the saints. Let me read to you a familiar account from Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. It starts in verse 5. Jesus is speaking, and he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine is a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are in bed uh, uh, with me in bed, I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, Though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? The reserved attitude that Englishmen are noted for is, is undoubtedly a strength in some situations. But in prayer, friends, we should be fervent. We should ask God the, the same petition thousands of times without worrying that he will become tired of it. We should even present him with reasons to answer our prayers. Regarding the example we've just read, it is quite right to quote this to God, we, we say, Lord, you've said that you are willing to give the Spirit to those who ask for it. So I'm asking you now to fulfill that promise and grant me an extra measure of the Spirit. We're not offending God by quoting his word as if he needs a reminder of it. No, we're, we are glorifying God by quoting his word. Because in this we show our absolute reliance on his many wonderful promises. And even when it comes to presenting the gospel to the world, we similarly 
encourage people to barge their way into the kingdom of God. Now we don't preach free will. We know that no one can get into the kingdom in any way without first being drawn to Jesus by the Father. But we also confidently use the language of Jesus himself who said in Luke 13 verse 24 Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. What an awful thought. When Jesus returns, we will no doubt see repentance on a scale the world has never seen. But the window for salvation will have gone. It will be too late for them. Brethren, let me suggest you take three things from today's message. Firstly, think on the wonder of forgiveness of sins. That none other than God himself created the means by which he be could become like us and give his life so that we might be set free. Secondly, unless you already pray frequently and fervently enough, let the word encourage you to become more committed in your prayer life. And finally, I encourage you to do what the vast majority of God's people neglect. That is, bear witness to Jesus Christ in this world. Pray for opportunity. Pray for great courage. And tell people to exercise all urgency in hammering on God's door and not giving up until he opens it and gives to them the twin gift of remission of sins and eternal life. The Lord bless you. Amen.